Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever noticed a trend among pastors? Over time, they tend to get called to bigger churches, usually with better pay. However, after 15 years of pastoring a church in rural South Carolina, Pastor Alan Kane heard God calling him to move to a smaller church that was having financial difficulty. Although it took some convincing, Kane eventually moved his wife and children up to Ohio and began serving at the 150-year-old Lawrenceville Church of God. Over the past 13 years, they've gone from about 30 people in attendance on a typical Sunday all the way to 175. In this interview, I asked Kane what his secret is. The answer he gives may surprise you. Here now is interview number 30, When God Speaks, with Pastor Alan Kane. Well, first of all, welcome to Restitutio. Thank you. Glad to have you. Uh, let's get started by talking about how you grew up. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Absolutely. My uh, dad uh, was a pastor in the Church of God, and uh, he just retired, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago at 50 years of ministry. And So my first Sunday out of the womb, I was in church and uh, been there most every Sunday ever since. So definitely grew up um, as a believer and have enjoyed every minute of it for the most part. We've had our times of sadness and brokenness, but that's all part of life. So So did you have a defining moment when you turned your life over to Christ? Oh, yes. A couple of them. The first was I was about 13 years old at Northeast Youth Camp, it was called, here in Ohio. And I remember exactly where I was sitting in the chapel. And I don't remember who the speaker was, but they had asked for decisions for the Lord. And I just knew in my heart that that was time, and and I gave my life to Christ that night, and came home, talked to my dad, got baptized with a good friend of mine the following week, and and uh, started that walk with the Lord, and and then when I was in college, I had my, it wasn't a decision, but it was a, that moment in my life where I decided it was time to go deeper, you know, and I had my calling, I guess it was, and and my acceptance of that calling in the ministry, and never turned back from that so far. In college, you went to Oregon Bible College, right? Yeah. yeah. Did, did you go to another school before that? No, right out of high school into the Bible College. So why did you do that? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was torn at the time between I wanted to pursue uh, possibly automotive engineering, and also was considering ministry and wasn't real dead set either way. And so I decided just to try the Bible college first and see what the Lord spoke to me about. And and after my first year there, it was a very, very clear calling. And I just never pursued any other career after that. I just, I knew from the get-go. I remember exactly where I was then, too, the I was praying, Lord, you know, what do I do? I'm getting done in my freshman year. What do I do next? And there was exactly where I was sitting, where the window I was looking out of. And I still think the Lord speaks to his people. And 
I hear heard a still small voice very clearly that says, uh, "You will be a pastor," and um, and I just knew it with everything in my being at that very moment. So I just came back the next year and thirty two years now. Wow, you've been in ministry for thirty two years altogether. I guess I graduated in eighty six, went into my internship in eighty six, so thirty one years I guess coming up on thirty two. Wow. I'm old. <laughs> that can be a good thing, right? <laughs> it beats the alternative. That's... Yeah, right. Uh, well, where where are you pastoring now for uh, those listening that aren't familiar with you? I pastor in Springfield, Ohio. It's between Dayton and Columbus, Ohio. It's a Lawrenceville Church of God. Been here 13 years this August, past August. Small little village outside of Springfield, Lawrenceville is. Okay. It's been around 150-some years as a church. The Lawrenceville Church is 150 years old? A little more than that, but yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wasn't an original founder, though. I'm not that old. (laughs) So you didn't start that church. Okay. No, I didn't. 13 years ago, when you came on board, how many were coming on a typical Sunday? I don't know. Maybe around 30, maybe something like that. 30 folks. And how many How many do you have on a typical Sunday these days? Probably average around 175, something like that. So that's a pretty significant growth over 13 years. Could you share a little bit about the story of how that happened? And, you know, especially with a, an eye to encouraging others who are either in ministry or deeply care about evangelism and growth and their churches. Yeah. Part of it was, I just mentioned a minute ago, that I think God still speaks to his people, and my calling to come up here was probably the clearest thing I've ever heard from the Lord. I don't have time to tell that long story, but over and over again, the Lord continuously gave me the signs and actually spoke to my heart and mind a couple times that I was to be here. So I, you know, I think it was something that the Lord was setting up the right combination at the right time. There were many great pastors that have pastored here that have had laid the groundwork for what was coming, and and I just knew that I needed to be here. And so it's kind of my frustration at times, and it's maybe even been my case in one time in my life, but there always seems to be the Lord always calls you to a bigger church that pays better. Right. And I, I always find that interesting. We always seem to get called up instead of sideways or down. And um, <laughs> this is one of those moments where it was down for me uh, from where I was at, less pay, smaller church, a more expensive area to live in with less money. And I was like, Lord, what are you doing here? And I'd add it up on paper and, you know, I don't know how we're going to do it. And I just kept hearing it's your job to obey, my job to provide. So, Well, let me ask you a couple quick questions here. So how long had you been at your previous church? 15 years. So you were there for 15 years. I mean, at that point, who leaves? I mean, 15 years is a long time to be in one place. And then also, how old were your kids at this point? My oldest was, I think, about sixth grade. So wasn't in high school yet. And that was another reason, probably for the timing, that you know that transition from grade school to junior high is it's a switch anyway. And so to switch up here, even though it added a little drama for her and angst, I'm sure I, I told the Lord, I said, if you're going to call me, you got to call the family too. And that's what happened over time that 
they were all very much on board about coming. And so the, the younger ones hardly knew the difference, but she was the one that had the biggest change to make in her life. The Lord was like he always does. If, if he leads you somewhere, he'll provide what you need. And he did that for her and for my kids and for my wife and I. Wow. Your wife must have been on board because, I mean, otherwise it just doesn't seem to make any logical sense to move the kids, move the family, move to an area where the cost of living is higher, the pay is lower. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it didn't. Yeah. A lot of people thought I was crazy. And, uh, and it really comes down to I was absolutely certain that this is where I had to be. In fact, I was actually talking myself out of this. You know, we'd had some struggles uh, the last year at the church I was at, partially my fault, and I'm sure partially somebody else's, and like most things are. But And I was thinking, I don't want to go to a church that's 150 years old. You know, I want to start something new. And so I kind of talked myself out of the calling to Lawrenceville and thought, well, maybe the Lord just saying go to Ohio. And so I actually started working with another friend of mine about planning a brand new church in a town probably about 15 miles away from here. Another one of those moments, the Lord made it abundantly clear that that was not what he had asked me to do. And, and so I called my friend and after that moment that I had and, and said, all right, that's done. I, just, I don't know when or how, but I got to, I got to go to Lawrenceville, and and here we are. We've grown. We moved down the street. We built. Uh, we bought 25 acres and built a 1.2 million dollar building, and the ministry has been really good. All right. Well, before we get into that a little bit more, is there a way you could give us the short version of your call to Lawrenceville, or is is just too many? <laughs> too many. I'm just so curious now. <laughs> See, most people think I'm crazy when I tell my story, but I guess I really don't care. Well, I mean, you have the track record to back it up at this point, right? <laughs> I, I just love the quote, by the way. It says, when we talk to God, we call it prayer. And when he talks to us, we call it schizophrenia. It just seems funny that we feel like we can talk to him, but he can't talk to us. You start looking at the scripture, God talks to his people all the time. Right. I haven't had it very often in my life, but the one case was when I was in college. And I guess the Lord knows I'm a little simple, so he gives it me in short sentences. When I was sitting at that desk looking out that window, and the Lord, what I do, he says, you will be a pastor. I remember it clear as day. And uh, I really hadn't had anything that direct in, in quite a long time in my life. And when I was really struggling with what I do in the ministry I was at, uh, you know, like I said, we had some issues. And like a lot of pastors, got burnt out and was wondering if I should even be a pastor. Didn't think I had anything to offer. And I just really struggling, and, and the Lord began to, to speak into, into my life. Some of those moments like that was very clear. I was at Fuel, which is our national youth camp. Seth Ross was working there. He was a pastor here in, in Springfield as well, in Northridge, a different church, North Hills. And he had came to camp early to set up, went back home here to Springfield to preach, came back to camp Sunday afternoon and realized he left all the keys to the camp at his office. And so I was just happened to be, and I'm making air quotes right now, just happened to be in the hallway. And when he walked out, he was talking with a guy from his church trying to figure out how to get the keys back. And I said, hey, Seth, I said, I got to go 
to Columbus tomorrow anyway to drop our kids off because my sister is going to watch them. I said, I can drive right through Springfield, pick up your keys. He said, that'd be wonderful. So he gave me directions the back way, and the back way was right through Lawrenceville, right by the church. And I remember coming around that curve where the Lawrenceville church was at the time, and as I rounded that corner, I was looking at it, and the Lord, just as clear as I'm talking to you, but it wasn't audible, but in my head, he says, you will be here. Short sentences, because I'm a simple man. <laughs> You'll be here. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to be here. That's <laughs> 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 exactly what I said. And uh, I remember I, I pulled it after I slowed down and pulled in the driveway and <clears throat> drove around it and headed out. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'll tell you later. Anyway, so that was the beginning of that process. And I was burnt out, and my wife knew that. And she just happened to flip past the station where they were advertising a, it's like something called Shepherd's Ministry. It was a ministry to pastors who were hurting that they were having a big conference in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. And, and so Sue called the station, got the information and told me I needed to go. So I went, sat down at a table for breakfast in the morning and a guy sat down there with me and he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm trying to find a reason to stay in the ministry. Wow. He says, well, good. I'm glad you're here. And he says, now stay through the end of the day because at the end of the day, we're going to give away free round trip for two people, you and your spouse, to fly to Kansas to our three-day conference. And uh, he says, but you got to stay to the end. And when he said that, I had another one of those moments where the Lord says, you're going to win that trip. And I, you know, at this time, I think I'm just crazy. Right. And I, I just brushed it off as willful thinking, you know, but I knew from experience what that sounded like. <laughs> so I didn't think too much more about it. At the end of the day, there were about 600 pastors sitting in this massive auditorium in a, what looked like a shopping mall, but it was a church. He said, well, time, time to draw the, the names. And he had a bucket and he held it up and you know, think I'm crazy. That's all right. But before he reached his hand up there, I heard him say my name in his voice in my head. And I knew for certain that he was going to draw my name out. And he did. He drew my name out, said Alan Kane. And I just kind of laughed. In fact, I started crying. Oh, wow. And, and I, I remember talking to the Lord then. I said, I don't even need to go on the trip. Just knowing that, you know, I'm hurting is all I need. And, and that, to me, the reason why, I mean, he could have just had my name drawn and I would never known it. But the fact that he spoke it to me first, right. my opinion was to confirm that he knew, that he wanted me to know that he knew that I was hurting and, and that this was from him. And and I said, I don't even go, need to go on the trip, but I will. <laughs> and I did. My wife and I flew out to Kansas and uh, had a great time. And they were just, a number of things like that. The last time there when I was thinking about planning a church instead of going to Lawrenceville, right? I kind of had another one of these conversations so-called with the Lord. And, and, and one of those that happened that morning where he told me where I to go somewhere specific to see someone. And I did. And he says, you see what happened this morning? I said, yeah. He said, 
You remember those other times where I did that? Yeah. He said, you remember the time when I said, you're going to Lawrenceville? And I said, yeah. He said, Why are you trying to plan a church then? Right. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's when I called my friend that we were planning a plant and said, he already knew all these other things anyway. And he said, I said, I can't do it. I got to go to Lawrenceville. Don't know how or if I'm ready for that, but we're going to do it anyway. And here I am. It's a lot longer story, and I know a lot of people don't buy it, and that's okay. I don't, that doesn't bother me. It sounds pretty powerful to me. I just love the tenderness of how God works with you in that meeting to draw your name and to show that, like it says in Matthew 10, that his eyes on the sparrow, that he counts the hairs of our head, that he yeah. is involved and aware and attentive to the even just the small things in our lives. So I think that's really, really wonderful. Now, uh, share a little bit about once you got on board at Lawrenceville. I mean, you came in there presumably with a uh, a four-point plan, and you told everyone this is how it's going to be. If you want me here, I'm going to be the new leader, and you better listen to what I have to say. And uh, everybody just said, all right, well, we've we've been waiting for a strong leader to come, and we're so glad you're here. That's how it went, right? That's exactly how it went. <laughs> I got my whip out, and I cracked it, and they all... Right. and they all just immediately submitted to your perfect yeah. leadership. That's the, <laughs> that is one thing I am not perfect. The Lord had really been teaching me some things through my last experience. My 15 years there were great. The last year had some stress and tension in it, but the Lord was teaching me lessons there, too. When I came here to Lawrenceville, my heart was absolutely focused on we need to connect with our community in a real and significant way. And that's kind of what I preached about for the first year is that we just need to be looking for needs and filling those needs, building relationships, and, and especially with those who can't do anything in kind, return it to us. You know, I said, we need to set up a deacon's fund, and when we know somebody's hurting, we need to step in and we need to help them. And we began to do that, and I remember one family, we, over the course of about three months, invested $1,000 in them, getting them out of a, a hole that they had fell, fallen into, you know, financially, and they never once stepped across the threshold of our church door. And, and to be honest, I was a little bit excited about that, that we could talk about it in the terms that we did it because we felt God was asking us to. It was the right thing to do, not that we were looking to get something out of it, you know, ourselves. And I just believe that when we do what we think is right, those people may not come, but God will send us the people who want to do those kind of things. And and that's what he was doing. He began to send us people who were interested in carrying the test that Jesus is going to give at the end of the age is, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you visit me? You know, he was sending us people that really wanted to make a difference like that. And and so my my preaching and my focus was, we have to be outward focused. We, selfishness is a death nail in a church. It is an absolute death nail, and we have to be looking out. And so, I started. You know, it's kind of my nature anyway. I like to meet people and talk to them. And so um, I began to do that in the community, and I became good friends with a 
guy who owns a little produce stand here in town that everybody knows, everybody goes to. And he and I became good friends. And, you know, when the church is 30 people, it's time is a little freer. Right. And, uh, and so I spent days at times just working on his farm because everyone in the community passed through there. And I got to know hundreds of people. And he had a lot of workers that would come in and go and come in and go. And I remember one day, one week, I spent about two or three days planting pumpkins with him. And I remember getting the elders together uh, shortly thereafter, and I said, I just want you to know, in case word comes back, that your pastor spent two, three days planting pumpkins when he, and not pastoring. I said, I want you to know that I consider that pastoring. I said, the friendships I'm building with him and and all his workers in the community are invaluable. And there's guys there that probably still haven't really ever come into a church, but when they are in need, they think of me as their pastor. Right. And, uh, and who knows where all that leads and just making connections like that. And that's what I was encouraging people to do in that first few years is we just need to invest in our neighbors and community in a real way that is not, it is not manipulative. So people know when you're trying to manipulate them and trying to get something out of them. We just need to do it because we want to do it, and it's the right thing. Now, as you're casting this vision and, and sharing this whole approach to ministry, were people pretty much on board with that? They they thought, oh, wow, this is really consistent with Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, or was there a lot of resistance? I mean, how did it go down? No, uh, because of the you know, the struggle uh, with the numbers they were at and, and financially they were, when I got here, were really tight. It was kind of a perfect storm. They were willing to try anything. Okay. So, and they were open to it. And, and I think human nature even enjoys that kind of work. And, and so for the most part, they were on board. And, and um, when uh, I remember going, you know, board meeting after board meeting, and I would encourage them, you know, okay, here's a need here. Let's give some money away. And they're like, man, you know, we just don't have very much. And I said, I know. It's the right thing. Let's do it. And, you know, a few months in, all of a sudden we start having a bigger balance in our checking account, a bigger balance and a bigger balance. And it's so like, counterintuitive. Yeah. And they said, like, where's that coming from? So every board meeting I got to preach again that when, if we're rivers, God sends the blessings in, we send them out, they'll keep sending them in and so we can do more and. I said, but if we ever hold it and don't share it, they'll quit. So now this is not a equation that if we give, we'll always have more money than we need. We know that that's not always been true in church history. I'm not trying to suggest that, but in this case, he was kept blessing us financially, and and when the time came to build our building, we were for three or almost four years before we started building, we would we're bringing in twice what we were spending on our budget. And and it was during the financial crisis that we were trying to build this building and no bank was going to loan anybody any money until they saw our books. Right. That we were bringing in twice what our budget was. And, and again, God was just, I think, honoring us for being faithful to loving those around us. And, and then the bank said, Oh, yeah, you're already making enough to make the payments. I said, yeah, we are, and, and so here we are. But And because of that, we had quite a bit of money to put down on the building, too. 
Yeah, I mean, you think about somebody that is struggling financially, just a regular person, the normal course of action is to, first of all, stop spending, and second of all, find a way to get more money. So, you know, if you apply that to the church mindset, then you're, what are you doing? You're you're asking everyone for money all the time, and you're not spending it on anyone. I mean, you basically did the opposite of what would be, you know, the typical scenario here. Yeah. It is counterintuitive, except it's God's economy. You know, Malachi, don't rob me. If you rob me, I'll curse the 100%. But if you bring the 10% in, I'll bless the 90, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I really believe the 90 goes farther in obedience than the 100% does in disobedience. Yeah. And, and so um, that's what we were doing, and, and, uh, and it sure uh, was effective and, and continues to be. And I've had conversations with people in churches, and someone said, you know, there's this need, and someone, we want to help them, and. Somebody else says, well, they already have a church. They're never going to come to ours. Why should we help them? Right. And I was like, oh, you're missing the blessing. If you feel like God's calling and leading, then then do it and let him open the storehouses of heaven. The only time he tells us to test him is with our giving as an act of faith instead of a lack of faith. I mean, this is really a a core New Testament ethic that we see. I mean, you see it with Jesus, you see it in 1 Corinthians, you see it in multiple places in in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, oh, where yeah. you trust in God, and He takes care of you on one side, and then on the other side, that you focus on others rather than selfishness. Yeah, it doesn't negate good stewardship, you know. You still have to be a good steward, you still put stuff back for the winter, look at the ant, you know. And all those things, but the, the principle of giving is the only God way of getting what is needed and, and being able to increase the blessing to other people. And that's what you got to do it for. Just yeah, not to get to get, but to get to give. Right. I mean, the other way is just so frustrating because if you are doing charity or works of mercy in order to get people to come. Usually that doesn't work, and if it does work and they come, they're coming because they want more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not—it it yeah. just creates kind of like a weird relationship, yeah. whereas if you're giving no strings attached because it's what Jesus tells us to do, it's, it's you know, a way that we can be a blessing to those around us, I mean, then th- there's freedom in that. Yeah, and, I, and it has been my experience here that— Many of the people we've helped, like I said, have never started attending here, but we have visitors all the time and people coming all the time. And and I thank God just sending us people who have a heart for those kind of things so that we continue to do them and make a difference around here. And we've had some respond to our giving personally, but it's huge to teach with that, that it's because it's the right thing, not because we, we want to grow our numbers. No, that that can't be the reason. People always see through that, right? Because then you're just like a slimy car used car salesman <laughs> who's you know just like yeah. trying to trying to bring the fish in and uh, you know make a profit. Yeah. 
Well, let me ask you this. Over the course of your ministry, what else have you seen that's worked well as far as growth or spiritual development or that you either you did or others have done? Like I said, one is really ask God for clear direction on where you go to do ministry. I think so many pastors look for the bigger paycheck and, and miss the calling. I am not opposed to bigger paycheck, by the way. <laughs> I, I am just it can't be our motivation so to me that's it's the biggest thing is to be in the spot where God needs you to be and and even if we're not we can still do this is the will of God that you love him and love people because I am stupid old man sometimes what if I would have missed Lawrenceville you know what if I wouldn't have paid attention wouldn't have been asking and I would have stayed in South Carolina well there's still people to love there and there's still a God to love there I could have done the the overriding will of God, I call it, which is to love him and to love neighbors yourself. I could have done that there. I could have done that in any church. I think there are people who are, whatever point in their life, are the right fit for the right ministry. So I think it really is the massive key in, in success is to be where he really wants you to be. And the problem is we're afraid to ask sometimes because... We're afraid of what the answer might be. Right. I mean, I was afraid. Like, Lord, look at I got it here on paper. Read it. It won't work. Much to no one's surprise, God didn't work it out. And you know, after 13 years, I'm not starving. If you had a camera on me, you could tell that. And uh, <laughs> He just provides a way. And and the other issue is, for me anyway, is to make sure we always stay incredibly humble um you know tense is you know hey we built a new building look at us right and <clears throat> we couldn't do anything if god didn't make it happen well how do you <clears throat> how do you maintain that heart in the midst of some success the more you understand grace and how bad we have offended god and by killing his boy and and yet he gives favor to us anyway and let his son die for you know, how how can we be arrogant about anything? We're a mess and absolute chaos and 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 yet he continues to use us and love us and to me that's how I keep that perspective and I'm sure I don't always do it very well. Another key I think that goes along with that is as a pastor anyway, I say it from the pulpit all the time. I am just as much as mess as anyone sitting out there. You know, so many times people think the pastor has it all figured out, and man, if they were in our heads, they would know otherwise. <laughs> so you kind I of shoot think, yourself in the in the foot in the sense of not mm-hmm. allowing people to get this perfectionistic ideal of mm-hmm. who you are and, and what your life is like. Yeah, and it, and it's a good for us and good for them. And you know, I I talk about my struggles and battles I have, and within a framework that's not too open, you know, to cause issues, but, you know, I think it's important that they understand that, and and that we're just a group of people working together. I just happen to be the one standing up, talking every Sunday, and that humble heart that the Lord can remind me of if I get too prideful, can knock me down a peg or two, and, and just, we work together as a bunch of imperfect people serving a perfect God, and and I think that's also draws people. Our first Sunday 
in the new building, I had a three-pound sledgehammer behind my pulpit, and I pulled it out, and I walked around with it on my shoulder for about 10 minutes, the whole time threatening to knock a hole in the brand-new wall on the first Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know, I was just talking about the fact that I said, this is not our golden calf. You know, we're not here to serve this building. We're not here to protect this building. This building is just a tool. It's a bigger roof to get the church under. And I said, you know, we can't be so worried about the new building that we can't do any ministry in it. I said, so to ease your minds, we're just going to get the first hole in the wall, get it over with. Of course, they're all freaking out. I did. I should have done it because the, the guy that did all our interior work actually goes to church, and he would have had it fixed. By next Sunday, you would never have seen it. <laughs> they went ahead and knocked the whole wall and got it over with. But one of the ladies in our church told me later, she leaned up to the lady in front of her, if he knocks a hole in that wall, I'm going to slap him silly. <laughs> oh, boy. And what I talked to, and my sermon title that Sunday was, If You Build It, They Will Come. Right. Field of Dreams line. And I said, most of you think the sermon is going to be about if you build a new building out on a major highway, they will come. I said, it has nothing to do with the building that if you build a place of unconditional love and grace and humility, people will want to be there. And in other words, if you build family, people want to be part of that. And it has nothing to do with the building. Yeah. So, I think it's so important because it's so easy to start getting prideful as a con- uh, just somebody in the congregation that, oh, this is so nice, and we're, we're in this good location, and we're really moving up in the world, and just to get that subtle change of heart from the God who provides to the provision and to look at what he gives as something bigger than what it really is. I mean, that lesson as a starting point probably was pretty shocking to people. I mean, what was the response you received? (laughs) About knocking a hole in the wall? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, just about the whole idea of, hey, okay, we've got this nice building, but that's not what we're about. That's a facilitator for what we're about. It started long before the building went up. We had a sign out on the corner that I had made that said, the future temporary home of the Lawrenceville Church of God. And I was waiting for the first person to ask me, and I remember I was at a funeral, and somebody outside the church asked me, what does that mean, future temporary home? And I said, well, we're going to build this building, and then when Jesus comes, he's going to burn it up with a fire and brimstone, and uh, it'll all be gone. I said, you know, it's not about the building. Everything's temporary. And so, you know, of course, I talked about that with our group on Sundays at the other church, you know, while we have the sign here, it's not about the building. It's it's going to be temporary anyway. If if fire or tornado or something doesn't get it in this lifetime, Jesus is going to get it when he comes. So, you know, let's not get too attached to it. It's just a structure. So we had that sign up for months and months and months, and I had a lot of people ask me, what do you mean, temporary home? Right, is it just made out of a tent, a tent <laughs> material or something? <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. What would you say, I know that you have a, a good youth program going over there, a young adult um, ministry. This this is something that we see a lot all across our land, where somebody grows up in the church, and then during those college-age years, they either fall away from the faith, or they just 
they just give it up and they don't come back. I mean, what what would you say is uh, something that you've seen that's helpful in working with this age group? It is a battle. I mean, our youth group right now is is down some in numbers, and I'm a little frustrated sometimes with with parents who um, don't see the value in having Christian friends and being taught within a Christian context among their peers, you know, that baseball and basketball and soccer and all that is outweighs that. And, right. And I've, I actually spoke on that not long ago. I said, yeah, you guys got all these kids in sports and maybe a half of 1% will actually go on and do something with that career, you know, sports-wise in their life. I said, but they all will stand before their God, you know, and what are you doing to get them ready for that? I was pretty blunt, and I said, you know, they need to be in youth group. They need to be in a place of that kind of environment where they can talk about faith issues. But to me, that's the biggest struggle. We have a generation of parents that they're trying to be friends to their kids instead of parents, and they don't push, you know, their kids to be their church or bring them. The other big battle is finding someone who's willing to dedicate the time to invest in those ministries. And that's what we pray about a lot in our board meetings is that the Lord would raise someone up who has a really big heart for that and who wants to see it succeed for our young adults and for our youth and junior youth. And, and it's a real struggle. Everyone's so busy. Busyness is the is the sin of our century, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure. No one has the time to invest in the things that are going to last forever. We do have people doing it, and good people doing it. It's just, it's a combination of temptations of time, I think, if that makes sense. Wait, say that again, it's a temptation of time? Of time, of taking someone's time. Oh, okay. So many gotcha. things, pulling so many people so many ways. Right. So would you say then that if somebody could be involved as especially a teenager in high school, that that would have a very significant effect on their decisions later on in their 20s once they are away at school or um, once they finish, finish out with school? Or even just making it through high school. We had a nice youth group in the church I was at when I was in high school and it was easier for me to say no to temptations because I knew I had friends that would back me up on that, you know, that I wasn't the lone ranger trying to be righteous in a, a wicked situation. And First Corinthians 15, I think 33, uh, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. <clears throat> well, good company helps good morals. Right. Kids need someone that they know at school, that they also know at church, that will have their back about what's right and what's wrong and and if they can get through that with some without making some horrible choices that will affect their twenties, then the chances are even better that they'll have a deep relationship where they can stick with it. And you know, and then the reality is a lot of teens move away from where they grow up and not much you can do about that. Right, right. It's hard to change anything with that because of the just the way the corporate yeah. jobs are and just yeah. the expectation that if you want to get ahead, you got to move. So, Which I don't think it's been like that forever. I think that's more no, of a newer, so. a newer phenomenon. 
Mm-hmm. Let me ask you uh, just another easy softball question. You say that uh, you're all about unconditional love. What about the LGBT people? I mean, how do you hold the line with God's standards for sexuality and express love at the same time? It's a hard one to do, but I think about the fact that the people who were steeped in sin were the ones most attracted to Jesus. They were kind of drawn to him, and uh, yet he never compromised on truth either. And that's and it's a hard thing to do, but I think we need we need to have a heart of love and grace to a point that those who are in lifestyles that we don't agree with, and I do believe it's sin, we have an attitude about us that draws them towards us and not pushes them away. Yeah. And because if they're never drawn to us, they're never going to listen to us anyway. Our sin most likely is that we think their sin is worse than our sin. Mm -hmm. And, it may be more open and more visible than some of our issues, even within the church as a whole, but we tend to separate that out and make that a bigger issue than our gossip or whatever it might be. And, and yeah, you look at Paul's list of the things that if we do, we will not inherit the kingdom of God, along with homosexuality is gossip and, you know, all those other issues. And, and again, it coming back to understanding our own grace we need to understand that they're broken people like we're broken people. And but the bigger issue in my ministry is heterosexuals who won't quit having affairs or are living together, you know, outside of God's will. Right. And the church doesn't seem to get near as bent about that as they do the LGBT issues. And But that's the bigger fight for me is people who love the Lord say they love the Lord and are living together and aren't married. I'm like, come on. And I even ask them and oh, I know. And, and then yet they don't get it fixed. And, you know, we need to be equal opportunity confronters. Right. Yeah. But even in those cases, those people should be drawn to us as we talk to them about their sin. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about how how you were talking about Jesus there for a second, about how he'd be at somebody's house, and he'd be surrounded by sinners, and how, you know, it's it's like the Bible portrays him as having a good time. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's really, but not compromising or falling into temptation himself. Right. But they liked him. It said he was um, a friend of sinners, right? Yeah. They're absolutely drawn to him. What you know? What would the church look like if we could be friends with the LGBT community and still not condone it? That we could be nice to them, you know? Yeah. And like I said, I got people that I'm dealing with who are living together, and I'm still nice to them. And their sin is as, as much as anyone else's, and let alone my own sins that I struggle with. Can we be nice and not condone? And I think we can. Now, some may not reciprocate that. <laughs> you know, if right. we tell them it's wrong, uh, they may not be nice to us, and but that we can't control that. Yeah, well, we can't worry about that. I mean, we got to do what is the right thing. Yeah. 
you know, if, uh, ideally, our heart is that they would respond well, but they they might not. Yeah, well, that's I, I really appreciate that that mindset you have there towards this issue because I mean it it's easy to get so embattled, especially as a pastor, where people are looking at you to say this is okay or it's wrong, and therefore let's sign this petition and let's go campaign against it. And, uh, well, I mean, obviously at this point that ship has sailed regardless of whatever anybody did. But um, I think you're right. You know, looking at at folks as as broken people that God wants to heal, you know, just like, you know, anyone else. I think that is a really helpful way to, to, to go about it. Let me ask you this. Have you talked, uh, ha- have people been talking to you at all about the recent bout of sexual harassment charges that have just like taken over the news lately? There are a lot of nervous men in the United States. <laughs> That's all I got to say. And there's even some now within the Christian community, uh, accusations being made and, Man, you gotta guard, 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 guard your heart, guard your communication. And, you know, let's be honest, all it takes now is an accusation and you're done. And, you know, you really can't guard against everything. If somebody wants to lie, they can't, they're gonna lie. But, you know, I tried to do everything I can not to ever visit a woman's home if her husband's not there or if somebody's not with me. And just so you can say, I, you know, I just never do that. I'm still not going to stop it, but man, you got to be careful. Right. We're in interesting times. Uh, on one hand, it seems like anything goes, literally anything goes sexually and morally. And yet on the other hand, if you say a woman's pretty or whatever, you know, it's, it's harassment. And it's kind of a, a strange place we're in now where we're holding people accountable in part of morality, but not in the other parts, you know. Um, yeah. It's just a, it's an odd time. Yeah, what I found ironic is I'll be reading an article about some big shot that just got busted for sexual harassment or sexual assault, and then at the bottom of the page will be ads using sex to sell products. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, wait a second. Yeah. Did we just say that this was wrong? But, uh, you know, there is this very strong intolerance towards a very narrow set of attitudes and behaviors, and I feel like we live in a very intolerant time where if you go off what the, you know, politically correct script is, then you are going to be skewered. And And what's amazing to me is, you know, you listen to rap music, it is nothing but rape and sexual harassment against women, you know, some of it. And nobody's lifting a word about that. And it's, some of it's absolutely horrible. And yet, you know, I just, it seems to be such a, like you said, a very narrow set where that, that morality applies. But we, we just got to continue to be light and darkness and, and make a difference where we're at. And if the whole church did that, the world would be a better place for sure. Yeah. In our time, it seems like there's so much polarization and shouting, and there's no more civility or desire to hear out or even understand the other side of an issue. I've seen this 
just in the last several years. I mean, it seems like the public discourse has just changed oh, in this yeah. country. I mean, even just like in newspapers and stuff where you'll see just the tone is absolutely outraged at the issue. It's not, there's no grace at all. None. I don't know what that is other than we're trying to find significance or self-worth. And if we're right and somebody else is wrong, we feel better about ourselves. And, you know, the, the heart of America is, is empty. And so we're looking for something that matters. And so we fight about everything, trying to get some passion in us when the real issue is that our hearts are far from our creator and we've lost hope. A heart that is without hope is sick, scripture says, you know, and I think that's where we are. And, you know, the Las Vegas shooting, is it guns, is it this, is it that? No, it's it's sick heart. And the issue is a heart issue, not guns or any particular political position or anything else. It's always back to spiritual and getting away from the heart of our creator. Would you say the solution then is to j- just to reach out as individuals to other individuals? I mean, so many times you get these political bandwagons that people jump on. Oh, if you just vote this person in, then he'll solve all your problems. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seems to me like more the individual touch is is where Jesus was at in his ministry. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, you know, the whole idea of church was not to have a, one mega church in a city, but to have a bunch of little churches all over in all kinds of communities, each one touching their community, you know. And there's nothing wrong with the mega church. I don't have any problem with that. I'm, I'm just saying the idea was more of a shotgun effect, just scatter these small groups all over where they could feel like family and, and uh, every community being touched by the good news of the gospel. And, and so, yeah, I think one-on-one is the way Jesus did it, too. The way the disciples did it, hmm. like that's changed. Yeah, yeah, that's still the modus operandi. So let me one last question: What about the one God issue? I mean, as as you're growing Lawrenceville, and people are coming in, and they they say, "Oh, this," they don't believe in the Trinity here, and they, and they start whispering, or maybe they ask one of the elders or you, "How do you deal with that?" I mean, do you preach on it from the pulpit? Do you do it as a new members class? private conversation, or how, how do you manage that? Uh, a little of each. If someone wants to become a member and get baptized, I share with them our statement of faith and explain it to them, you know, what we believe. And for us, our firewall, as I call it, is down the line farther, not a baptism. If you want to be an elder or a teacher, then you have to sign the statement of faith. Uh, I think people who are just for the first time coming to the Lord it's hard for them to expect them to understand everything. And so I explain it to them so they know. And if they still want to be part of what we're doing, and then get baptized, and then they can begin the process of studying that and, and figuring all those issues out on their own along with us, you know. And so we kind of put that firewall a little farther down the road. And, you know, we have people here who worship with us who don't agree with us on everything yet. And, and to be quite honest, I have a lot of people who, when I tell them that, they're like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, we, right. the millennial generation just doesn't seem to care very much about that. 
and you know, which is a different problem for church of God type people is that, you know, it's a big deal for us. And then we tell them that God is in three, he's one. And they're like, Oh, okay. And you don't go to heaven when you die, you're in the grave and the resurrection. Oh, okay. All right. What else are we going to do? And so <laughs> they just, it doesn't bother them, which is a, a different issue for some in our denomination to deal with is before they did care. And so we just fought. Now they don't fight. Now we don't know what to do because they don't. Now we got to fight to make them care about it, you know, which is <laughs> kind of funny. Anyway, I uh, I teach the truth and make it make it known individually when someone comes and and uh, I think most people when we give them the freedom to get there on their own and are not as pushy and and forceful that. They, they find their way there. And I've had a couple of people leave over it. Uh, you know, a number of families just say, ah, we can't do that. And I said, well, all right. I love you. And, uh, and they've gone on and they're still friends. They just don't come. Any other uh, concluding remarks or anything like anything else you'd like to say about ministry or what you've learned or advice? Yeah, I. the thing that keeps sticking in my mind is is what you said earlier, and I, how much God cares about us as individuals, and I think we lose that sometimes. We think of global things, and and not that God's individual care. That when a sparrow falls out of a tree, He literally knows it. And I just wanted to tell you one more quick story in that kind of scenario, and we'll end with this. And my, when my mom back in 1977 was in the last stages of cancer. A pastor friend, Scott Ross, he and his wife were traveling across the top of Illinois and just felt like they needed to come see us. And so they dropped down and visited us and, uh, and then went back to Omaha. And it was about a week later, I think, or so that my mom died. The night that my mom died, Scott Ross, good family friend, was dead asleep in bed. And he said he just woke up wide awake and felt like he needed to pray for my mom and for our family so compelling that he got out of bed and went into the living room and uh, either knelt or sat on the couch, I don't remember, and, and just prayed. And he said, I just for an hour, I felt like I needed to pray. And he said, afterwards, I felt like it was okay to go back to bed. And he did. And the next morning, he got a call that my mom had died and found out later that the last hour she was alive was the hour that, that he was praying. Wow. So I found that out. I was 13 when she died. I found that out maybe in college. Um, some of that story and I remember being upset with God at first and kind of wrestling with him like okay what was that about They're like well if Scott knew to wake up to pray for my mom that means God that you woke him up and if you woke him up you already knew mom was sick so why do you need him to pray you're already aware of that and I remember the moment I got clarity on that from the Lord was I woke him up so that you would know that I knew you guys wow. hurting. I went, oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> and I thought, and I remember telling him, I just preferred you healed her, but thank you, <laughs> you know. But I appreciate that he made it a way for me to know that he knew us by name, knew my mom by name. I just kind of like to end on that because I, I love that about our God, that he knows when you're hurting and uh, he sends people your way to love on you and understand that that's from him. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for talking with me today. Yeah.
Always good to talk to you, Sean. Just a couple of quick notes. If you wanted to watch any of Alan Kane's preaching, he has a YouTube channel, which I have a link to in the show notes for this episode, or you can search for LCOGTV. That's Lawrenceville Church of God TV. And you can find a whole bunch of his sermons there. Also, I have a link to his website, especially if you're in the Springfield area of Ohio, and it's called the lcog.com that's t h e l c o g.com if you would like to add your comments to this episode please come on to restitutio.org it's like restitution with no n .org and come on and search for interview 30 when god speaks with alan kane and you can leave a comment or a question there thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time remember the truth has nothing to fear